Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Welcome back, folks. We're joined by Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. Doc, welcome to the show. Thank you, Newell. It's good to be back with you. Doc, uh, let's uh, jump right into any COVID update. COVID's been going down. Um, we had a small little peak um, around around New Year's time, and that's been going down. That, that really fairly registered, I think, in terms of hospitalizations and so forth. A lot of transmission, but not a lot of people getting sick enough to be hospitalized. Um, flu is also going down, thankfully. We're, we're, we're no longer the nation's leader in flu cases. That title belongs to Tennessee right now. So we seem to have peaked. This was you know, an above-average flu season for us, and it's been about two or three weeks of consistent decline for influenza cases, which I'm very thankful for. Um, anything else out there? I know we had uh, RSV uh, floating around. Is that on a downward trend as well? It is. You know, I mean, <clears throat> the thing I would say is um, flu seasons are always unpredictable, and, and we've had plenty of flu seasons in the past where we would have a peak, go down, and then a few months later, a few months later, go back up. That's certainly possible. So we're not out of the woods on this. We had a fortuitous season of respiratory viruses this year in at least one respect, and that's we got our RSV surge out of the way early. We had a very early RSV surge a few months ago, and RSV was going down well before flu started going up in earnest. So that saved hospitals a lot. So they didn't have you know, the twindemic of both of those viruses peaking at the same time. So now we're just keeping our eye on flu. Again, it's been two or three weeks of downward trends with flu. We, to remind folks, we got off to a very fast start in flu this year. We led the nation in flu cases for about a month. Um, now it seems like, you know, we had an earlier peak, so we're having an earlier decline right now. The absolute rate is still very high, about 12 or 13% of all ER visits in the state are due to people with respiratory virus, most of which is flu. So there still is a lot of flu being spread, but we're on the downward trend swing. And again, I, I hope we stay that way, although it's certainly possible we tip back up as we have in some years past. Um, also, I think we were monitoring syphilis. Where are we there? Yeah, <clears throat> we're always monitoring syphilis. You know, <laughs> no good news, unfortunately. You know, we <clears throat> every year when you look across all um, STDs, you know, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and, and HIV in some aspects, you know, we're, we're easily in the top 10, if not in the top five, and that's not in the top two or three states in the country. And, and this, this is no different. We have a lot of syphilis out there because we have a lot of syphilis we have a lot of congenital syphilis when when the mother who's infected unknowingly passes it 
to a newborn baby, and 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 those cases can be devastating. They can result in neonatal death. They can result in terrible birth malformations. It, it's a really terrible thing. And and the the, the, the tragic irony of it is, it's, it's pretty easily treated once you know about it. Um, we dealt with a shortage of penicillin. That's in the middle to late 2023. That's gotten much better. So we're no longer in a shortage situation. So really the only limiting factor to being able to tamp down these cases, particularly of congenital syphilis, is just diagnosing it. But um, we see a lot of women that unfortunately have been complete prenatal care. Um, despite syphilis being, it's, it's required by law in Louisiana to be tested at least twice during pregnancy, that doesn't always happen for any number of reasons. And so we're working hard to fix those. But, you know, progress is very slow, unfortunately. I think this is going to continue to be a big issue for the next few years. And really, you want to get your hands on it, right? Because you don't want it running away from you. I mean, it, 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 when you look at it, 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 it can have some of the same trajectory that we had early onset with HIV. Yeah, no question. And, you know, this has gotten in recent months a lot of attention nationally. The, the CDC and the U.S. Um, Health and Human Services Department has put a lot of focus on it. They've, they've instituted some signature campaigns around it. And that really is because a few other states have now reached the high level of syphilis that Louisiana and some of our neighboring states have known for a while. So it's not that the rates here have gotten that much out of control, but there's been other states that have now reached the level that, that are close to it, at least, that, that we've been at. And, and again, there's, you know, the, the reason why this is such a gut punch, there are so many things in medicine that we don't have good treatments or cures for, you know, so many things. So when you have something as potentially damaging as congenital syphilis, and you have a really easy and cheap treatment for it, and you just can't get your hand around the problem despite that, you know, that's really unacceptable. So that's, that's, that's why I think you see so much focus on it combined with the increase in rates in some other states. You know, I, I think all in all, the attention is welcome. And I think the, the national health apparatus is directing energy and attention towards syphilis now in a way they have not in at least 20 years. And so hopefully, hopefully some good comes from that. I, I read a series of articles about, um, I don't know if this is the proper terminology to use, but a resurgence of HIV. Um, and there was a study that, that was reported on, came out this morning in, in Stat News about um, um, the numbers which were kind of telling uh, in the transgender women, woman uh, population. What do y'all, are, are there discussions at, at your level, public health directors across the country relative to that? Certainly. And it's a highly stigmatized population. It's a population that doesn't always feel comfortable seeking care. Um, you know, I can tell you in New Orleans, there are excellent clinics that do a wonderful job um, with this population and, and, and are culturally competent and, and just world-class outside of new Orleans in Louisiana, that's not always the case. And so it's understandable that transgender individuals might not feel comfortable seeking care. They, they might not want to be judged 
or feel like they're being judged by the medical provider that they're seeing and a whole host of other reasons. They're highly stigmatized. And, um, you know, they, they're, by the way, their suicide rates in the transgender community, particularly the transgender children, are four to five times that the average population, um, just, just astronomical for those types of reasons. So HIV has, is, is a problem. No, no question. It all comes down to having opportunities but in, in, in a broader in a broad, broader sense as well, I mean, I know this is one, you know, uh, subunit of the of the population, but a lot of yeah. these articles were just talking about in general, too. Is that the case? Yeah. In some states, it is. In Louisiana, our rates of new HIV cases have gone down a little bit the past couple of years. And there's been a discussion on our end as to whether that's a legitimate a real decrease or whether that's due, you know, because of the pandemic, there wasn't as much testing going on as there normally is. And we're having discussions on our end about which one we think that is. But there are other states that have seen significant increases in HIV. Um, so that's where we stand now. You know, there's there's been a lot of good work in Louisiana. There's a number of hospital emergency departments here that do, you know, what they call opt-out testing, where Mm -hmm. at a baseline, you know, people that walk in the door get tested for HIV unless they don't want to. And then you have a lot of increased screening and you catch a lot of cases. And then there's pretty good linkage, at least in the big cities in Louisiana, to clinics that can offer treatment. That's a gold standard practice. Um, You know, we've put a lot of energy into HIV in earlier years. I hope the decrease that we are realizing now is a legitimate one. I hope it's not just an artifact because of COVID, but I think we probably need another year or two of data to answer that. I know there are a lot of maintenance medications available out there if you are HIV positive. Have there been any studies as to the linkage of being a little, I guess, more careless uh, because because of the availability of these um HIV maintenance drugs? The best data out there, you know, there's been incredible improvements in in HIV drugs. The the regimens have been greatly simplified now. There's combination pills, so people no longer have to take, you know, 10 or 12 pills a day at certain times. And because of that, people with HIV, when they remain on appropriate treatment, are living very, very long, very normal lives. One of the things that has come out, the data points, is that it's now indisputable that for people that have undetectable viral loads of HIV, meaning they're on treatment, and because they're on treatment, their virus is suppressed, they cannot transmit the virus to other people. They're not an infectious risk. So that's become an idiot in the HIV world. It's it's known as U equals U. Undetectable virus equals untransmittable. So there's certainly been a lot of conversation around that, and, and, and if that uh, you know, as your question gets to, is influencing o- other behaviors. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the key to reducing transmission now is clearly identifying people who are HIV positive and getting them on regular appropriate treatment. Because once that virus level goes down to zero on treatment, they really are no longer an infectious risk, and it takes that risk off the table. Yeah. Got a text here, uh, Doc, as a follow-up to previous conversations that we had. We'll pivot to medications now and shortages. 
Is there a continuing shortage of ADD and ADHD medicine? There could be. I'm not. I'm not personally familiar with it. Um, I, I know we're talking about uh, there were rolling shortages of Adderall last year. I'm, I'm not sure if that's still the case. Um, it, it could be. I just have not. I've not been following that issue in the past few weeks that that closely. Or it hasn't risen to my desk. I'll say that. So I'm, I'm not sure about the ADHD medicines. So uh, we've talked about antibiotics. Um, I think uh, one that's at the forefront is erythromycin. Yeah, this is very frustrating, and this is another medication shortage that I don't think a lot of people know about, but it's, uh, it kind of hits to the heart of things that we take for granted right now, and that, that's why it's been such a frustration for me. So um, nearly every birth that happens, routine birth, erythromycin ointment, antibiotic ointment is applied very quickly after birth um, to to the, the 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 eyelid margin of the newborn baby, you know, within the first few hours, and it's to prevent um, ocular eye infections that, that could be transmitted from the mom. And, and one of the big ones actually is gonorrhea, and you know, pregnant women can have gonorrhea and not know it. Louisiana has a lot of gonorrhea; we're the third highest gonorrhea rates in the country, and so there's a lot of undiagnosed gonorrhea. And when that does get transmitted to a newborn through their eyes, it can lead to blindness, lead to terrible complications. So this is standard routine practice in nearly every birth in the country, unless there's some reason not to do it. Erythromycin is an old medicine. It's inexpensive. You know, it's not some brand name medicine that makes a lot of money for the pharmaceutical industry. And because of that, there's not a lot of investment in its production. So over the past few weeks, a lot of birthing hospitals in the state have had challenges getting this very old, very inexpensive medicine that is essential to safe births. I mean, this is, this is routine practice in any birth around the country right now. We've not yet had a birth in the state where the hospital was unable to get that, but, um, you know, supplies are getting very low and we're working very hard with our federal partners to, to kind of ensure that we have some redundancy and, and, and mitigation strategy on this. But to me, you know, looking at all the problems we have, to have to be expending re- resources and time to deal with something like this that just feels so so silly given the, you know, where we are in medicine in this country to have such incredible resources on one hand, but to be dealing with a shortage of such a old, inexpensive, but essential medicine like this just really boggles my mind, Bill, to be honest with you. So just to put this in context, and and then we're going to come back to the economic side of this, what would be the downstream implications if uh, the child was to contract gonorrhea in the eyes? They could go blind. It could could lead to lifelong blindness. Now, I don't think it's ever going to get to that because if a hospital were to actually run out, of erythromycin ointment, then the next step is to give the child an IV antibiotic, to give them, for example, ceftriaxone through an IV. But that means putting an IV into 
a one day old baby, which is which is far, far from ideal. So you can see, you know, I, I don't think it's going to get and, to and aren't, aren't there some born. implications to, for a newborn to be on antibiotics uh, intravenously as well? There probably are that we don't know. I mean, it, you know, yeah. every, every antibiotic has its toxicity profile, but we've never given, you know, IV antibiotics to, you know, nearly every newborn baby in the country. You, you know, those type of things have never been done. Needless to say, the, the process of putting an IV in a newborn baby is not always easy and straightforward. Yeah. So it's not something and the reason we would want to do. The reason I ask, it would just it just seems to me, and this is so frustrating, um, that commercial insurers, um, you know, uh, the uninsured population and obviously the Medicaid population, and I'm sure there's a there's a disproportionate incident rate incidence rate uh, among those three uh, as it relates to this that that the downstream cost so are so incredibly high that we would come together and make sure that we wouldn't be facing these types of shortages um, you know that yeah. that that the government would ensure that there's somebody whether it be you know if you got to work with the major manufacturer to to develop subsidiary entities to that that this is what they do for these purposes because in the end you save money right i mean it just from an economic standpoint, it just makes so much sense to make sure that we have it available. Yeah, I think so. But I have realized, and listen, I think, you know, we stay very close to our federal partners, and I find them to be very cooperative and helpful. But I don't think the federal health system is set up for these type of challenges. There's no real agency or, or department or section within a department that is geared up to look at what drug shortages may be coming down the pipeline and help develop solutions to it. Um, you've got different agencies that each do a very small slice of that, and no one does a comprehensive job, and no one does it particularly well. You know, the FDA as the regulator kind of tracks these drug shortages, and they have a website with a laundry list. I mean, you know, hundreds, a thousand drug shortages that, that they're tracking, but but they're the regulator. They're not the ones that really help mitigate the problem. No one really is, is set up to do that. And I think that's a structural shortcoming of the federal health system right now. And as you point out, we end up paying for it in spades on the back end. It would surely be worth our collective investment to set up a structure within the federal government to help mitigate these problems, identify shortages coming down the pipeline, to help, you know, alleviate those shortages through whatever, you know, a number of means possible, but to do it well ahead of having to scramble on the back end like I think we're doing now with this one. Yeah, for me, when I see some of the things that we decide to make a priority and spend money on, as opposed to things like this, because we've had shortages in cancer drugs and, and everything mm -hmm. else, and I mean people suffering out there i mean it just it just doesn't make much sense to me but that I, I, i'll get off my soapbox <laughs> I mean, just, and i'm sure it drives you crazy too in public health uh for sure oh, we're visiting with dr joe Cantor, state health officer for the state of louisiana we'll be right back folks stay with us 
Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Welcome back, folks. We're uh, joined by Dr. Joe Cantor, the Louisiana State Health Officer. Uh, Doc, uh, Doc, uh, I know um, that Florida continues with their plan with the FDA's approval to try and import drugs from Canada. Is there an update on that? Well, the update is that only recently they got FDA approval to do so. So about a week, maybe one or two weeks ago, FDA finally, after almost two years of petitioning them, FDA gave them approval to try and do this. Um, it's the first state to really be granted approval in this in this manner. Florida had been advocating for it for some time, and I mean, I'll be honest, it, it's it's worth a shot. I mean, there's there, there's a line of argument that um, it's not a serious plan; it's kind of more of a talking point. But but let's let's see what they can do. Um, Canada has responded very forcefully. I mean, clearly. The Canadian pharmaceutical market can't support being, uh, you know, an essential supplier for the bulk of the U.S., and they know that. And so Canada has started to put up restrictions of their own pharmaceutical manufacturers sending product out of country in this manner. The extent to which they'll be able to really block it off completely, I don't know. So um, let's see what Florida can do. I mean, <laughs> they, they might be able to get some drugs for, uh, for better prices. Um, it might be all for nothing. I really don't know, but um, it's an exciting development. That's for sure. Do you think that moves like this catch the attention of the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs that kind of have this monopoly over this situation? And, you know, I was reading an article um, the other day about the these, you and I have talked about uh, the diabetic drugs that are now, have another label that are uh, really diet drugs and uh, a number of companies that are switching PBMs, going to medium-sized PBMs as to largers, and uh, um, medical economists are split over whether or not this is actually going to change anything and whether or not transparency and pricing and that will lead to lower drug prices. And, and it's almost the more I read, the more frustrated I get because uh, it's just so many hooks and ladders and shoots on, on this uh, medical economy. It's hard to make sense of it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Noah. I mean, even even if Florida doesn't really succeed in, in, in bringing in cheaper drugs, and like I said, they, they might not, I, I think it's without a doubt a shot across the bow to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so now, you know, in the course of the year, you've got, the first state being granted approval to try and import drugs internationally. You also have, um, you know, the federal law taking effect that caps out-of-pocket costs for insulin at 35 bucks, um, and you've got a renewed conversation in the Senate on whether or not Medicare should be able to negotiate drug prices. Currently, they can't, and that's something that nearly every other country is able to do. They're able to negotiate drug prices with the power of being a large purchaser. Medicare is a massive purchaser of pharmaceuticals, but 
the way the current laws are set up, and this was negotiated in when the prescription drug benefit was put in, they um, they basically have to take the cost, the price that's given. They can't really use their leverage as, as a giant payer to negotiate cost of drugs down. I think the message now is none of those things are set in stone. Um, and it really has felt like they have been, you know, for 15 years or so um, because the farm industry is pretty powerful. But I think now it's pretty clear the public won't accept it. Lawmakers are responding to that. And I, I think, you know, the implication of your question is spot on. I think the farm industry is taking note of that. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're going to have to fight hard to, harder to keep these restrictions. And I don't think I no longer think it's a given that these type of restrictions stay. I, I think everything's up for debate. You know, we, we've got a great advocate on this issue um, in Louisiana with Senator Bill Cassidy, who's oh, absolutely. Um, the second second most powerful person right now on the Senate Health Committee. You know, him him and Bernie Sanders, the odd couple up there, but but both of them are are really attuned to this issue. And so maybe maybe that's the magic we need to actually get something done on it. Well, I mean, the restriction that you talk about is exactly why Canada has cheaper prices, right? Exactly why. And same thing with the UK. Um, it's not just because they have variations of nationalized health systems. I mean, Medicare is a form of a nationalized health system and it's ginormous. They use those as leverage to negotiate with the farm industry. That's something that Medicare has been um, restricted by law from doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we it's funny because I think on the Medicaid side, what what, what is it called? 403B pricing uh, with pharmacy? Yeah. Uh, there's a program called 340B pricing. 340B, that allows, that's it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah um, allows um, certain certain Medicaid drugs to be purchased at, at a very, very low cost, particularly for clinics and hospitals that are serving underserved populations. And with the intent that the, the proceeds that they get on that or the savings they get on that then gets reinvested back into the care that they're providing communities. Sometimes it works that way. Sometimes it doesn't. But that's, that's yeah. The but the but the but the point is, is that you know, we, we it's almost like we have our toe in the water on a couple of things that you know, and and we just don't want to put the whole foot in, and, and knowing that it, it it'll inure to the benefit of the consumer. Um, I think it it helps insurance companies as well, uh, obviously. But we we're just kind of stuck on stock. Uh, absolutely. We, we, we kind of dabble. Um, I, you know, this one issue, I think it's just, you know, the weight of the pharmaceutical industry and their, their lobbying power has been so immense that, you know, the issue of Medicare negotiating drug prices has just been off the table for, for so many years. It's not off the table anymore. So I, I think we're seeing that that industrial influence and power slip a little bit. I think the public is kind of realizing they're kind of getting swindled. You know, it's, it's, it's everyone's tax dollars paying for Medicare, which is paying these rates for drugs, and they clearly could get those drugs for cheaper if only the program was allowed to negotiate. So I, I, I think people are realizing that now, and lawmakers are realizing that. So I don't, I don't see the industry's power here as, as unwavering as it was, you know, maybe a few years ago. Yeah. And I, I think what has helped to, uh, foster and stimulate this conversation, too, um, was uh, the fact that now a lot of states have engaged in, in Medicaid expansion. It was demonized for, for decades. Uh, I was one of the 
few early onset Republicans that spoke publicly about it and said that we needed to we needed to do this only because I, I saw from the inside out sitting on a hospital board the trials and tribulations of not doing it. And, you know, and, and the fact that we were leaving money on the table and all the other states that were taking advantage of it. And I think a lot of the that, that kind of that demonization approach is kind of diminished uh, in many ways of, of, about the, the medical economy. Yeah, no question. And I mean, with, with the example you give of Medicaid expansion, you know, a state's going to pay for the medical care of people that don't have insurance one way or the other. They're going to pay for it to prop up hospitals that are seeing patients in their ER and having to admit complications on the back end, or they're going to pay a fraction of that on the front end to help give preventative care, you know, in the first place, which is what Medicaid does for a lot of patients. And in the process, you strengthen your hospital industry. That's what Louisiana did. And, and you know, that's what North Carolina is about to do right now. And, and one by one, you see these states that, you know, rejected Medicaid expansion for whatever reason, oftentimes political realizing that financially they just can't deal with that anymore. And I think, you know, all that's to the betterment of the people that really, you know, I mean, I, I believe strongly that, you know, if someone is sick or needs primary preventative care in this country, we ought to be able to find a way to make that possible for them, even if they can't pay for it. I got a text here, and I haven't really followed his, his new drug company uh, talking about Mark Cuban. Uh, and I know that he he's got this um, this disruptor company that's out there, and in, in, in the manner in which they deal with drugs. Have you followed that at all? Just a little bit. Amazon too, um, you know, is playing in that space and, and trying to spin up 100%, um, you know, mail order drug companies uh, with various levels of success. The margins are really small on a lot of these pharmaceuticals and. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure where they're headed. To be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, obviously, um, it, it's all about the masses, um, you know, and being uh, as big as uh, as you can get in a very short period of time. Doc, thank you so much for joining us today. Truly appreciate your time, your insight as always, um, and uh, have a great week. Thank you, Noel. You too. Appreciate it. Uh, all right. It's Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. We will be right back, folks. Stay with us. You know, um, been following what's going on in um, Israel with the Israeli-Hamas war there. And there are certain things that the U.S. government uh, hangs their hat on. It just, it, it just drives me crazy. So the U.S. has consistently said that the size of the Palestinian territories should not be reduced after the conflict. This is the same government that's been somewhat critical of uh, the IDF and, and the Israelis letting their guard down and not being on top of this and that as it relates to this happenstance and this raid on October the 7th. That was horrific. Horrific things happened. So I'm sure the Israelis have done an after action on October 7th. Benjamin Netanyahu's been the recipient of a lot of criticism as to their lack of preparation there. So the Israelis, it seems as though, have embarked upon increasing the buffer zone around um, the coterminous boundaries of the Gaza Strip with the state of Israel. 
the buffer zone in its pre- in in its previous state prior to October seventh was about three hundred and thirty yards, right? There's a thousand seven hundred sixty yards in a mile, so not even a third um, of a mile is there. The Israelis propose to increase the buffer zone on average 320 yards depending on the topography challenges that are presented. But let's just for argument's sake say another 320 yards. It now gets to one-third of a mile. Now in the aftermath of October 7th, the fact that a lot of people there, Hamas and others included, chanting from the river to the sea, or proposing the complete and total annihilation of Jews, Israelis, and otherwise, talking about they're not willing to accept anything less. Is it really obnoxious to think that they might want to increase the buffer zone to be able to move the threat a little further back and to really sanitize that buffer zone where there's access to no one there. When you think about the cost, the economic cost that they've had to bear as a result of Hamas deciding, for whatever reason, that October 7th and all the horrific things that they did on that day was going to inure to the benefit of them or the Palestinian people is beyond me. But I just don't think it's obnoxious to for them to want to go grab, a, on average, another 320 yards for the safety and security of, of their folks. They continue to hurl, Hamas, that is, bombs that way. We're in a state of war. Every time Israel has gone to war, they've always given all of the land back for the most part. And we're going we're gonna to draw the line in the sand. It's going to be interesting how this is going to play out in the course of this being an election year. And I, I can assume uh, that uh, it's not going to play out very well. And, but the U.S. is already speaking with forked tongue, right? And Anthony Blinken the other set day said the United States had been clear in our opposition to the forced displacement of people, but added that it's appropriate that security measures are taken so Israelis can return to their homes in the south. Yeah, I think it's totally appropriate that they increase the buffer zone. And obviously it's not obnoxious in the way that they're doing it because the fact of the matter is they recognize that this is a small piece of land. I got to imagine they'd love a one-mile buffer zone, much less a one-third of a mile buffer zone. So I hope this is not a line in the sand that we're drawing because this is not, in my view, inappropriate. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Folks, when we come back after the top of the news break, we'll visit with Kassan Corbin, the director of Sewage and Water Board. A lot of rain already this week. More to come. We'll get an update and status as to the system. On the back half of the 12 o'clock hour, we'll visit with Ron Fauche, political analyst and publisher of Lunchtime Politics. The race for the Republican nomination for president now down to two candidates, one very angry that the other one won't get out. We'll be right back. Stay with us. 
Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app.